Mark chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. For those who grew up in church, this story is a staple Sunday school story. It is an amazing story of Jesus on so many fronts. And Mark in his gospel, he sets it up for us, and he says in verse 1, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. The English Standard Version puts it this way, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Normally, when reading this passage, our attention is drawn almost immediately to the presence of the crowds and the stretcher being lowered through the roof, the ensuing standoff between Jesus and the scribes, and then the lame man carrying his bed home, healed and whole. But before we get to all of that fun stuff, we park on an interesting fact contained within the opening verse. Jesus is home. In fact, the English Standard Version says he is at home. Now, this phrase is not suggesting that Capernaum is his hometown, because we know that that's Nazareth. Neither is the passage suggesting that Capernaum is his birth town, because we know that that's Bethlehem. Rather, what the passage is suggesting is that Capernaum is his home, i.e. it's where he has a house. Mark's Gospel tells us that apparently it was reported to the people that Jesus was at home. In other words, he's in. Very Scottish term that we use, are you in? We send messages, we're going to come around and see you if you're in, meaning you're at home. Jesus is in. He's in residence. Now, before you start lobbing stones at the heretic, quoting the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, let's back that thought up. And in Matthew's gospel, following the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, just as he gets ready to begin his ministry, Matthew tells us, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. This passage would suggest then that Capernaum is where Jesus lived. It's where he called home. Now, some reckon that this is because he stayed at the home of Peter, and certainly the scripture does suggest that there is a very close friendship between these guys, they are good pals, so it is possible that he lived with Peter. It's also possible that he had his own place too. To be honest, whether it's Peter's house or Jesus' house is kind of irrelevant really. What is important is that in this passage, Jesus is home. 
He's at home. He's in. Now, verse 2 then widens the story up for us. And it says, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, this is a great picture in verse 2 for us to grasp. When the people of Capernaum heard that Jesus had come home, they rushed to his house. And as his house becomes packed out, he preaches the word of God to them. The The picture painted here is significant. People gather in Jesus, the Son of God's house, and specifically they gather around the preaching of the Word. This picture is a picture of church. When we talk about church, in fact, we've already done it many times this morning, and as we've navigated through the service, when we talk about church, we talk about it as being God's house. And every week in church, we gather specifically around the preaching of the Word. In fact, right now, in this very moment, we are mirroring this passage of Scripture. Here in 2023, we're mirroring what we're reading in Mark chapter 2 all those years ago. We have come into the house of God. Jesus is very much in this morning, amen. And we pause then to hear what he would have to say to us through his word. And there are so many different dynamics that we could begin to call out as we journey through this passage. We could begin to talk about the union between his word and his presence and how that facilitates the habitation of God. We could begin to talk about healing. We could begin to talk about faith. We could begin to talk about salvation because all of these things are mentioned and referenced in this passage. But the dynamic that we choose to focus on today, building on what God spoke to us a couple of weeks ago at our vision day, The focus of our examination of this passage is on the dynamic of welcome. And we see that in this moment of Scripture in so many different ways. The overarching theme of welcome is first introduced to us when Mark tells us that the people gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Now, in Scripture, no detail is wasted. The divine is in the detail, they say. And the detail mentioned here, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> the devil's in the detail, the divine. In... Okay, in Scripture, no detail is ever wasted, right? And the detail mentioned here does more than just simply paint a picture of a full and busy house. It actually paints for us a picture of the welcome of Jesus. For there to be no room in the house, no room outside the house, not even outside the door, suggests to us that the door is open. Now, the door would have to be open for people to get inside, but the door would also have to be open for those gathered outside to be able to see in, to be able to hear what's going on inside, to be able to be part of what's going on inside Jesus' house. Now, that might seem a bit like semantics, and you might think it's not really rocket science that the door is open. Why is this guy going on and on about an open door? And the reason is because in New Testament times, there was a very high value placed upon community within regular culture. Life in New Testament Israel was by nature incredibly public, and trust with fellow man was strong. In the morning, one would open the door of the house and the door would then remain open throughout the day to let people come and go, as was often the case. And we read hints of that when you read through the Gospels. In fact, commentators and theologians mention that the door of a house was never shut unless someone deliberately wanted privacy. 
So an open door meant an open house. An open door signified a welcome. It signified that all were welcome to come and go as they pleased. Now rewind and, and, and bring that information back into the opening verse again. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. News of Jesus' arrival back in town spread quickly, and when people heard that Jesus had come home, they nipped round to see him, and the fact that his house became so filled with people both inside and outside suggests that upon arrival at Jesus' doorstep, they found the door open. Now, it sounds like we're getting really excited about some minor detail and what, in essence, is a bit of basic common sense, but it is actually significant. Because just prior to this in Mark's gospel, in Mark 1.38, we read about what's been happening just before we turn the corner into this chapter. And Mark tells us that Jesus says to his disciples, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus has been preaching and teaching in various places and locations throughout Galilee, and he comes home after what we would describe as an extensive ministry tour. And when the people heard that Jesus had come home, they go round to his gaff to connect with him. And when they arrive at his doorstep, they are met not with a closed door because Jesus is resting. They don't find an out-of-office sign because Jesus has been really busy recently and he's needing some much-needed downtime. He's not off limits, he's not unavailable, he's not seeking a little bit of privacy or a little bit of me time. When they arrive at his house, they find his home wide open and his welcome open even wider. He welcomes them into his house, into his dwelling place, into the place of his inhabitants. He welcomes them all into his presence and he begins to teach them the word of God. He, he welcomed them to encounter his reality. And I know it sounds like we're driving a point here, but step back for a moment and see this powerful dynamic statement that is presented in these opening verses. Jesus turns up, he inhabits a place, he takes up residence within a location, and with the arrival of his presence is the arrival of his welcome. All are welcome. And here is something that we need to understand because we want to be a people that hosts the presence of God, Amen. We want to see his glory sweep in. We want to see his glory rise upon his people and transform us and our worlds and our lives and our communities and our cities. So here's something quite important that we need to understand when it comes to hosting the presence of God. And that is if we want to host the presence of God, we have to host with the welcome of God. If we want to be a presence-centered community, experiencing the reality of Christ, then we have to be a welcoming community that welcomes like Christ. It's quite powerful. The Apostle Paul taught this as he wrote to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul highlights the broad welcome of Jesus, and he doesn't just stick it there, but he almost personalizes it. He could have just issued a command to the church, Dear Roman church, be welcoming, lots of love, Paul. But he doesn't, he, he takes it further than that. He makes it almost personal. He says, you, you who were dead in your sin, 
You who were alien to him and living in rebellion to him, you were welcomed with his loving kindness into an experience of grace. You were accepted and received into the arms of forgiveness and into the experience of Christ. So as you have been welcomed, now welcome. As you have experienced, now live. Live out the welcome of Jesus. And as you do, as you live out his welcome, you will not only display his glory, but you will bring him glory. Two important things come out of this then. And the first is that our welcome is an act of worship. We're told in this verse that we glorify God when we make others feel welcome in our presence, but more importantly, we glorify him when we make others feel welcome in his presence. Some translations, they translate this slightly differently. They say, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. ESV says, welcome one another. The NIV says, accept one another. And this translation backs up the thought that our welcome is an act of worship and it's that which brings him praise. But it also sheds a light and broads our understanding of welcome. To welcome is to reflect the open door of Christ's acceptance. And this is something that we need to grasp in church land. And we need to grasp the breadth of acceptance that comes from the heart of Jesus. We're actually really good at it when we're the ones on the receiving end of his acceptance. And we love to tell the story of how we've been accepted just as we are and and came into a place of knowing him, but we can become very guilty that when we seek to reflect that to others, it's only those that kind of mirror what we think lifestyle should look like that we tend to say are accepted. But we need to reflect the breadth of acceptance that comes from Jesus' heart. And Jesus modeled this throughout his ministry. He openly expressed welcome to a variety of people, like Zacchaeus, a tax collector that others didn't want to associate with, a tax collector who was swindling other people and was fraudulent in his practices. And Jesus nipped around his house for a curry and to hang out with him. He accepted him and he welcomed him into his presence and into his company. He affirmed and forgave people like the sinful woman with the alabaster jar whose very reputation meant that to be in the presence of this woman and to be touched by this woman was to be touched and marred by the reputation that she carried. Jesus welcomed her. In fact, he accepted her. And he accepted her worship and her affection. He served the needs of people, emptying people's griefs, healing their sickness, turning lives around. He welcomed the misunderstood and the rejected. He loved the unlovable, like the leper, the woman with the issue of blood, the woman caught in the throes of adultery who was about to be murdered by her own community. He brought people from being outcast to being accepted. He brought them from the outside in. And he welcomed them and accepted them. We have to understand Every miracle, every healing, every meal, every dinner party, every go in peace and sin no more, every go in peace your faith has healed you, every transformed life that brought the outsider in and gave the worthless a place and a standing and a purpose in life, every conversation, every sermon, every action communicated, you are welcome. Everything Jesus did. 
communicated and presented the permanently open door to the kingdom of God that says, you are welcome here, there's room for you. Now, if we are to be his body, and if we are to be his people, and we are to be his presence upon the earth, then we need to welcome others with the welcome of God. And that goes deeper than a welcome team on the door, and that's really important. It's deeper than that because it's about spending time with people. It's about caring for people, loving people, serving the needs of others and of each other, loving the unlovable, welcoming the understood, the misunderstood, welcoming the rejected, and saying, you have a place here. And when we live as a welcoming people, when people encounter acceptance and affirmation from us and acceptance from us, as a reflection of Christ, when welcome is encountered because of Christ in a life. And what we mean by that is when we welcome others that we would not ordinarily welcome, but we do it because God commands us to do it, and we do it because we ourselves have been welcomed and changed by Christ. So we're living out what we've been on the receiving end of. When we welcome others, when welcome is encountered because of Christ in a life, it actually brings glory to Him. It brings worship to Him. It is an act of worship. Because it puts him and it puts his heart front and center for everyone to see. And it glorifies who he is. Our welcome is an act of worship. But more than that, not only does our welcome display the glory of God, but it also facilitates the glory of God too. When Jesus turns up, when he takes up residence, when he inhabits a space and presences himself, if his presence brings his welcome, then it would make sense that a welcome space is one that he would seek to occupy. It makes sense that a welcoming people that seek to reflect his heart is a people to whom he would seek to manifest his heart. I remember in 2009, we had a visit from Times Square Church in New York that was founded by David Wilkerson. The senior pastor and 220 Americans descended on our area for a week of mission and outreach and I spent some time and got to know a wonderful man by the name of Neil Rhodes, who was the senior associate pastor. And he, he said to me, Fraser, tell me what your vision and ministry is. What's your passion? And I said, my passion is to see the glory of God rise on the people of God. The manifest glory. I'm not talking about waves of the Spirit or, or renewal. Glory, which the Spirit brings. But to see manifest glory rise on His people in such a way that it transforms hearts and lives and towns and cities and nations. And he says, Fraser, I'm going to give you the piece of advice that David Wilkerson gave to me. And he says that it's this, if you want to see the glory of God in unprecedented flow, reach the poor. He says, if you want to see the manifest glory of God, touch what's on his heart. Because when you touch what's on his heart, he trusts you with his heart. A community that builds around the mandate of reflecting his heart, reflecting his welcome, is one that we would believe he could trust with his glory. Our welcome facilitates his presence because our welcome reflects God on earth. So within the expression of welcome, then God is found. And suddenly this brings a whole challenge to the way that we do ministry and the way that we view ministry. Everything that we do should seek to reflect the heart of God that says to others and says to each other, you are welcome. Our ministry is to communicate the welcome of God. It's what we call the gospel. The gospel message is this, come and experience grace. Doesn't matter who you are, 
It doesn't matter where you've been, where you're going. It doesn't even matter what you believe. Come and experience grace. You are welcome in the heart of God. Now, yes, that welcome will come at a cost. Accepting that welcome will come at a cost. Embracing that welcome will bring radical change to who you are. It will transform you and completely change your worldview. But that act of change and transformation, that's actually God's job. Our part of the job is to communicate you are welcome in the heart of God. And sometimes I think we get mixed up about that. We, we, we want to see the change happen in order to express the welcome, but actually that's God's job to deal with. Our job is just to communicate welcome. And in such gospel communications, there is the potential for powerful encounters with God because the welcome of God facilitates his presence. So actually, those welcome moments, those expressions of welcome, carry the potential to see heaven invade the earth and change happen within a culture and within a life right in front of our eyes. In those moments when we affirm and accept, in those moments when we serve the needs of others, in those moments when we forgive, when we make the choice to love the unlovely and accept the rejected, in those moments when we give a smile and shake a hand, look someone in the eye and communicate value, when we open up conversations that invest in people or show interest in others, in those moments when directly and indirectly, verbally and non-verbally, in the moments that we communicate, you are welcome, well, in such moments we reflect his heart and we create an opportunity for a direct encounter with his heart and with his presence. If we want to host the presence of God, we need to host with the welcome of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, this is where we change tact a little bit and we examine the passage to look at how Jesus welcomed and how he communicated welcome and perhaps even find ourselves on the receiving end of that today. Don't worry, we'll be quick. Four groups of people are identified from the passage. The first obvious group of people that our attention is drawn to is the crowd. The crowd of people has filled Jesus' house, and it's a big crowd because they've taken up all the room inside the house, and it's seen they've taken up all the room outside the house. The obvious question is, who are these people? And the obvious answer and the logical answer is that they're the townsfolk of Capernaum. In fact, the way that the passage is written almost carries a kind of familiar tone that when the people heard that he'd come home, they just gathered in his house. It's almost like this was a familiar scene. It was a regular thing that happened. Jesus came home, people went round his gaff, and he preached to them. These were, if you like, the regulars in Jesus' house. They knew where his house was. They knew they could go there. They knew he would preach to them. These were the people who were keen to be in Jesus' presence, who wanted to hear what he had to say, who were eager to learn about, discover more of the revelation and the revolution that he was bringing. They wanted to hear more, see more, know more, experience more. So they flocked to his house, and this is something it would seem they do on a semi-regular basis. And clearly Jesus is okay with that, because he welcomes them. In fact, you could almost say he's pleased with it. He doesn't tell them to go away. He doesn't tell them that he's too tired for them or he doesn't have time for them. No, he welcomes them and he responds to their hunger by teaching them about the reality of God. And here is the amazing thing about God. Our God says, if you seek me, you'll find me. 
He says, draw near to me and I'm going to draw near to you. Call upon me and I'll show you great and unsearchable things that you do not already know. Learn from me and find that I'm gentle and humble in heart. When we seek to experience God, well, he welcomes us into the experiences of his heart. When we desire to know more of him, he invites us on a journey of discovery. We long to hear his voice, know his reality. He draws near to us and he begins to whisper into our beings. He wants us to know him. And it doesn't matter what's going on in our lives and it doesn't matter what's going on in our worlds and it doesn't matter how often we come to this moment, how often we make mistakes or muck it up. God always says to us, you are welcome. He always has time for us. He always has space and room for us. And he never tires of revealing his heart to us, which means we can never stop discovering him, learning about him, encountering him. He's infinitely bigger than we are. His ways are higher than ours. His knowledge is impossible for us to fathom or attain. Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to get God, so we just shouldn't try. Rather, what it means is that every encounter, every experience, every revelation from God is a whole new discovery and we can never stop discovering who he is and what he's like. There is no limit to the revelations and experiences of his heart, which means that our lives are just one huge journey of discovering and experiencing God. And this is what it means to have faith. To have faith is to spend your entire life discovering revelation after revelation and experience after experience of who God is. It's about spending our lives journeying into the knowledge of the God who always says, you are welcome. You're welcome to encounter my heart. You're welcome to discover new depths in my heart. You are welcome. And we see this in Mark 2. The, the people hear that Jesus is back in town, so they instinctively do what they usually do. They head over to his house to hear his heart and to be in his presence. And this is a picture of church. These people embody those of us who regularly gather in the presence of Jesus and regularly gather around his word and his heart. And we are welcome to come and press in and to see more and to know more and to receive more and to hear more. However, as we say that, there is a warning that comes from this passage. And the warning is in the positioning of the people. They are crammed into this house. They are crowding all around the house. They are so engaged. In fact, you could say they are so engrossed in Jesus and what Jesus is doing that they actually stand with their backs to the world around them. So much so that when four men arrive carrying a man in desperate need of an encounter with Jesus, they don't even notice. And if they do notice, they're so focused on receiving from Jesus themselves that they fail to care about a man in need who's outside of their crowd. We have to recognize the picture that is presented here, the dichotomy that is revealed. These people gather around the presence of Jesus and he welcomes them to do so. But they've gathered with an inward focus and they fail to recognize what's going on round about them. And sadly, this paints a picture of the church today and how the church is perceived by the world and the world's not wrong in perceiving us this way. We can be, see, be perceived as inward focused. And I get that sometimes church can be a bit of a safe haven where we come and we shut the outside world out for a bit. Things out there aren't great right now at all, are they? 
But things out there aren't great, but we're in here and we're having a good time and we're in here and we're being built up and we're in here and we're being told that we're saved and that we have the answer. In fact, we are the answer. We're on purpose with God. We're in here and we're okay. In actual fact, we need to turn outward. We need to begin to connect what Jesus is doing amongst us to the worlds and the settings that he places us within and the call of God that he places within us. And we need to release to the world that exists outside this safe haven of our four walls the reality of God. Sometimes the church can become so consumed with its gatherings, so consumed with preserving its rituals and its familiar practices that it fails to recognize that the reason that we exist is for the world outside and the needs of those that don't know him yet. We need to grasp this. The purpose of Pentecost was not for the 120 people in the upper room. The purpose of Pentecost was not so that 120 people in the upper room could have a spiritual experience and be part of the spiritual elite. The purpose of Pentecost was not for the 120 in the upper room. It was for the 3,000 plus in the square outside that didn't know him yet. The Holy Spirit was poured out. The glory of God filled the church of God. And the first thing that the church did in hosting his presence was to express his welcome to the multitude of people immediately outside its four walls. Notice that they didn't say, let's start holding evening meetings in the upper room and we'll call it the upper room outpouring. Let's just stay in his presence and build a 24-7 house of prayer. No, the first group of people post-resurrection, the first group of people who were blessed to host the manifestation of glory through Jesus Christ, the first thing that they did was they welcomed those outside their dimensions in. They brought those outside in. They welcomed all within the experience of God. And yes, there was some tough communication there. The blood of Jesus is on your hands. You've crucified him. You've killed him. You need to repent. There was tough communication. You need to repent. But if you repent, they said, you're welcome. You're welcome. The repentance and the outworking of repentance, that was God's job. Their job was to host the presence of God with the welcome of God. And in our contemporary expressions of church that seek to build around the experience of Pentecost, we can become a little bit guilty of building a culture that facilitates consumer mentality and an inward focus. We need a revelation. We need an experience. We want to hear from God. In fact, we want to be heard by God. We want and need insight and revelation. We want outpouring. We want the next anointing. We can become so focused on receiving that we fail to recognize the need to release what we're carrying to the world round about us. We can become so focused on receiving that we fail to recognize the needs of those in our immediate proximity. Sometimes we can become so obsessed with crowding around the reality of Jesus that we forget that we're actually supposed to convey the reality of Jesus to those that are outside our crowd. Let's be clear. God welcomes us. He welcomes us to come and meet with him. He welcomes us to come and hear from him. But we should never become so consumer-focused in our faith we neglect the needs of others. In the kingdom of God, the equation looks like this, seeking God equals sharing faith and serving others. And I realize that we could word that equation any way that you like. Sharing faith equals seeking God and serving others. Serving others equals seeking God and sharing faith. But the point that we're trying to make is that we can get so caught up in the seeking of God that we fail to recognize you can't do one without the other's. 
We can get so caught up in the seeking of God that we fail to recognize that we're actually called to host the presence of God with the welcome of God, which means we have to invest ourselves in the sharing of faith and the serving of other people. One of my favorite passages about this is Isaiah 58, where God says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? God says, here's how you get my attention, folks. Feed the hungry, clothe the poor, spend yourself on behalf of the oppressed, set the captives free. He says, and if you do it, here's what's going to happen. Then glory will rise and light will break forth in the darkness. You will call and I will hear and I will answer. We see that when we begin to share faith and serve others, we begin to seek him, really seek him. We see that when we begin to host with the welcome of God, well, he turns around and he says, okay, I can trust you with the presence. I can trust you with my glory. Our example then is seen in these four men who appear in the passage carrying the man in the mat. We read in verse three, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then Lord, the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Here in the passage come four guys, not five guys. They come centuries later blessing us with meat and milkshakes. But here in the passage come four guys, four nameless guys who have a friend in need. And they bring their friend to Jesus. And I love the fact that these guys are nameless. They are the heroes of the story. And we read the story of their faith. And we're challenged by their story of faith. But we have no clue who they are. They don't have selfies on Facebook of them lowering the man in the mat. We don't read them gaining the attention of Jesus and introducing themselves to him and to the crowd. Hi, everyone. This is our ministry. This is what we do. I just find people and I carry them to Jesus. That's what I do. That's who I am. That's the ministry he's given me. I was on my way here and I just saw this guy and I just knew what I needed to do. This is what I'm anointed for. Their focus is not on recognition or status. Their focus is on bringing their friend to Jesus. Let me prophesy. We're living in a season right now when Jesus is looking for a faceless, nameless generation that seek to serve him with no desire for spotlight or recognition, but just a heart to serve the purpose of God. It's time to turn the spotlights off, folks. It's time to turn the spotlights off. It's time to stop spotlighting man and ministries and anointings and individuals and personalities and characters. It's time to reflect the heart of Jesus to the world in need outside our door. The man at the center of this story is a man who needs an encounter with Jesus. He needs to meet with Jesus, but he cannot bring himself. He relies upon his mates to get him into the presence of Christ. And they carry the man, and when they get to Jesus' house, they can't get near because of the crowd. Nobody will move. So they climb the stairs at the side of the house. They dig a hole in what would have been a flat roof, and they lower the man down into the presence of Jesus. It's lovely. But picture this from the inside of the house. Jesus is in mid-flight. He's preaching his wee sandals off. When there's a disturbance from above, the sound of digging followed by dust and dirt and debris that fills the whole place and a bizarre sight of the underneath of a random guy being lowered from the ceiling. This scene is like a cross between Mission Impossible and Air Ambulance. 
But Jesus isn't phased by it at all. He doesn't kick off about the damage to the roof. What have you done to my roof? He doesn't say this isn't even my house and you've wrecked the roof. He doesn't go on about the cost involved or about the interruption to his sermon. And let me tell you, this preacher is not as gracious as Jesus. But he, he welcomes them. He welcomes the efforts of these four men who will stop at nothing to bring someone in need into the presence of Jesus. This becomes our example. Here is the picture of the church. We need to be those who will move heaven and earth. Those who will stop at nothing but do everything in our power, regardless of cost, regardless of how messy it could be, regardless of how much effort is involved. We need to be a church that sets its sights on bringing others into the presence of Jesus and seeing lives transformed. We need to increase our reach. As the text continues, there's the presence of another group in the house, and don't worry, we are getting towards the end. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When the man was lowered on his mat in front of Jesus, the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And it seems like a bit of a strange thing to say to someone in need of healing. But the reason for that was because in Jewish culture, they believed that sickness and sin were intrinsically linked. If you were sick, it must be because you have sinned. So Jesus knew that the way to deal with the sickness issue was to deal with the sin issue. This was the way that the people, and in particular the man, would accept the miracle. However, within the crowd were some teachers of the law, and their job was to study religious law, to teach it, to police its obedience, to make sure that nobody broke the laws of the faith. These people were strong in their faith. They enforced their beliefs upon others. So when Jesus announced that the man's sins were forgiven, well, they nearly had a hairy fit. Nobody they believed had the right to forgive sins. But God alone, this man was blaspheming by speaking like this. And what Jesus did next was amazing. He didn't chastise them. He didn't throw them out of his house. He welcomed them. He welcomed them by publicly interacting with their established belief systems. He welcomed them by bringing those belief systems from the unseen place of their thoughts into the public forum and within the narrative of what God was doing within that moment. He says, okay, this is what you're thinking. We welcome that into the story of what God is doing in this moment. He says, okay, let's open up the dialogue, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or you're healed. He knew that these guys believed that sickness and sin were intrinsically linked. So he says, okay, anybody can just say your sins are forgiven and those words be empty and mean nothing. Who on earth can tangibly measure whether what has been announced has actually been accomplished? Oh, that's right, I can. He says, so let me prove it. If you believe that this man's sickness is the result of sin, then the only way to prove that his sins are forgiven is to tell him to get up and walk. He's interacting with their established belief systems. He's challenging them. In fact, he's changing them. And the truth is, every single one of us build belief systems for ourselves. Everything we do is based upon many belief systems that we construct with regard to each area of our lives, and in particular, with God. And when we come into the presence of God, one of the things that he does is he interacts with 
our established belief systems. And he challenges them. And he changes them. Sometimes he even deconstructs them completely. And he does all of that to bring us into a very real experience of his heart and his presence. So let me ask you, what belief systems have you constructed in your life? God isn't real. God is punishing you, has punished you. God doesn't hear you. He doesn't care. Living a good life, being a good person is all you need. All the gods are the same. You don't deserve God. You can't experience Him the way that other people experience Him. You're not good enough. God can never use you. What belief systems do you carry? In the case of the teachers of the law, most of them held beliefs and positions because their families before them for generations that they'd been raised within that culture. So we're challenged again, what belief systems have we inherited? Have we picked up from others? The truth is, regardless of what they are, inherited or intrinsic, God says, you're welcome in his presence. And in the presence of Jesus, he wants to challenge them, interact with them. And to do so by revealing to us, not his rules and regulations, but his heart of love and acceptance. Jesus welcomes the teachers of the law. He welcomes the doubters, the questioners, the skeptics. And he begins a journey of interacting with their belief system to reveal and response his heart. And of course, the fourth person, so you know we're near the end. <laughs> the fourth person in this story is the man in the mat. A man in need, struggling with his lot in life, suffering and wounded, brought to the feet of Jesus, to whom Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. It begins with the statement, son, a term of endearment. Actually, more than that, it's a term of affection. And it's a term that communicates instant acceptance and makes the man feel safe. Isn't it amazing that in a room where there's lots of different divided opinions going on about what's happening, when this man is vulnerable as he's lowered in his illness into the forefront of everything, the first thing Jesus does is make him feel safe. And he communicates to this man, you are welcome in my presence. Here now I want to minister to your needs and change your life. One encounter with Jesus saw this guy leave a changed man because that's what encounters with Jesus do. <laughs> they push past rules and regulations of religion and they bring us into an experience of God, which is an experience of love and acceptance that completely transforms a life. Today, Glasgow Elam, we need to seek to host the presence of God by hosting with the welcome of God. So put yourself into this story. We too, like these people, gather in the house of God. Jesus is very much in residence with us today. We've gathered round his voice and we've gathered round what he would say to us and he tells us, you are welcome here. You one who regularly gathers in the presence of Jesus, regularly gathers around his word, eager to meet with him, to hear his voice, to encounter his heart, Jesus would say to you, you are welcome. Come and discover more. Come and explore. There's always more of God to discover. There's always more to experience and explore, more grace to be found, more love to be experienced. So he says to us all, come, find, seek, draw near, learn from my heart, find that I'm gentle and lowly. But as we accept that, let's become very careful that we do not become those that are consumed with crowding around the presence of Jesus, that we forget our responsibility to convey the reality of Jesus to those outside our crowd. Let's commit and let's stop at nothing to carry other people to a place of discovering Christ 
and the transformation He brings. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not quite sure why you're here. You're not even sure what you believe or if you believe. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know that I believe what you believe about God. Or what you're hearing and experiencing today is colliding with and challenging the beliefs that you've inherited or constructed in your life. Whatever your belief system is, whatever it may or may not be, Jesus says this to you, you are welcome here. Let me interact with your belief system, he says. Let me challenge the beliefs that are not a reflection of my heart to bring you into an experience of who I really am. Or maybe this morning you're a bit like the paralyzed man. Life has you walking with a limp, perhaps even immobilized completely. You're hurting, wounded, sore, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Whether you're struggling, coping, or doing okay, Jesus would say to you, you are welcome in this moment. You are welcome in my presence. He says, son, daughter, come and be loved. I want to minister to your needs. And just like the man in the passage, he wants to push past the rules and regulations of religion into an experience of God and love and acceptance that will completely change your life. So whoever you are, whatever you are, wherever you've been and wherever you're going, I want to declare today as pastor in this house, you are welcome. You are welcome in the presence of God. You are welcome in this moment. And if you're up for seeking God, sharing faith and serving others, then there's space here for you.